Hi everyone and welcome to Media's third podcast season titled Hybrid Futures, where we're zooming in on some of the most important entertainment consumption and cultural trends to pay attention to in 2022. My name is Carol Severin, a senior analyst and co-founder at Media Research, and I'll be your host today. This is episode four, and we're talking about the concept of bridging IRL and digital. And we'll go into that in a moment, but first I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce three brilliant minds who will be discussing this with us today. And so we've got uh, Hannah Callert, Chris Takrar, and Tatiana Kirisano. And I guess if you could all say hi and just sort of say, you know, sum up in a sentence or two, currently what your focus is these days in terms of coverage and research areas, and then we can kick things off. Hannah? Sure. Hello, I'm Hannah. I'm the cultural insights or cultural trends analyst at Medea. So I sort of sit in between all the different coverage areas and look at the underlying consumer trends. Hi, yeah, I'm Chris and I'm on the consulting team at Medea and mostly work in the music and creator space. So lots of uh, exciting project work that we end up doing here. Fantastic. Last but not least, Tatiana. Hey guys, I'm Tatiana. I'm a music industry analyst and consultant at Midia, um, and I'm a huge geek about all things music tech. So all these virtual events that we're going to be talking about are very interesting to me. <laughs> Great stuff. So bridging IRL and digital. I am, I'm going to try to sort of set the scene a little bit and, you know, just kind of give the uh, give our listeners a little bit of a sense as to where this whole concept and our thinking is even kind of coming from. And then we'll dive into it a bit deeper. So I guess the 20,000 foot view, as we call that in, at Media, as consumers, we are facing a big challenge in way of information overload. There are many things that contribute to that overload, but we are going to talk about one in particular today, which we believe contributes to this issue significantly. So simplistically speaking, consumers are living their lives between two worlds right now. You've got physical or the IRL, the in real life, and digital. Our grandparents lived in a world where you needed to know, you know, how to balance a checkbook with a pen and paper. Our grandchildren will probably live in a world where you just be messaging and managing money purely digitally. We are really the only generation that lives in a world that expects us to know and engage with both physical and digital tools and solutions. And for a consumer, that's kind of tiring. And actually, it's not very useful either, because these two worlds are kind of replicas of each other. So they often end up competing against each other for consumer attention and money, rather than cooperating in a symbiotic partnership to drive engagement and spend. And by the way, this is not to blame anyone. It was always going to be a natural result of the digital revolution, right? It's simply because the initial fundamental pillars of the digital transformation were initially laid uh, by generations who never lived in the digital world in the first place. But they were not aware of all the implications that, uh, and, you know, that widespread digital adoption was going to have. But we now have digital natives, people who grew up between these two worlds and see the current drawbacks for what they really are. And so the challenge really for the digital natives going forward will be to innovate digital propositions to complement real-life environments rather than compete against them. And vice versa, it will also be about innovating physical environments and experiences uh, and drawing them closer to digital and making it all just more seamless, meaningful, and helpful. And this is what we are really going to be talking about. And this is what we really mean by bridging IRL and digital. It's about taking the two parallel worlds 
and consolidating them into one more helpful one. Okay, so let's bring this to our panelists. Uh, we've kind of introduced the concept, but can you guys weigh in on how on why bridging IRL and digital is actually important? And is it even important? Anyone would like to kick in? Kick off, rather? <laughs> um, I'll jump in. Um, I mean, in addition to everything that you just said about how it doesn't make sense to have these experiences competing with each other, I obviously am biased toward the music side of all this because I'm on, in the, on the music team. But um, what comes to mind for me is that this also is important for helping to kind of cross-pollinate your audiences, like bringing people that are in a digital space to the IRL space and vice versa and kind of creating a continuum so that they can do both. And I think there's also almost an educational motivation where you're kind of creating this path for people that maybe don't know or aren't that well acquainted with the IRL um, tools to help them understand it um, by creating these sort of bridges. Um, so I can I can see those as as being ways that this is important. But I think there's a lot of a lot more reasons. Interesting, Chris. You look like you had something yeah, to say there. Yeah, I think just building on what Tati's saying, um, like especially in music, you've got to be where your fans are, really. And if you think in the pre-digital age. And even in the pre-record age, you know, music was all kind of, it was just all live, basically. And then recordings happen, and then people started hanging out at record stores. And then the sort of core fans and the core audiences were at record stores. So you need to have products there. And now we know from our previous projects and our research, looking at the overlaps of gaming and music, that gaming fans tend to be some of the biggest music fans that are out there. So if you want to reach the biggest music fans, you've got to meet them in their own environment and their own territory and also use that as a funnel to other things like your recordings, like your live shows, like your merch. And so these virtual environments, these gaming environments, the whole metaverse, if that's where your fans are, then that's where you need to be. But also use that to promote everything that you are beyond it. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely more important now than ever, right? Because we've just had the last almost two years now of um, pseudo lockdowns, not lockdowns, um, this sort of buildup of everyone going online. They're older demographics or not as tech savvy, savvy demographics that have now moved completely online. Uh, so we're living in a very digital first world, but there are still these these overlaps of in some ways um but also it becomes competition when you have to choose between IRL and digital it's automatically going to compete for time particularly in an environment moving out of a lockdown where you have to be digital first and suddenly live is scarce um but all entertainment propositions are moving into a more digital first digital first favoring um, and so the best way to stop having competition between these things is to basically overlap them and to make bridges between them and let them happen at the same time in a way that accepts that consumers are not behaving in very strict entertainment ways anymore. They're not just sitting down to watch the TV and then getting up and then going out to a live show anymore. They're listening to music on their commutes. They're like watching TV with friends. They're messaging each other. They're having they're doing, there's so many different overlapping behaviors and rather than enforcing an incumbent traditional uh, diametric way of allocating these behaviors and expecting people to engage with your proposition, there needs to be a sort of release of those borders and allowing, um, basically planning for these overlaps to happen. 
I think you bring up a really interesting point there, particularly with the timing around the easing of the lockdowns as well. And, you know, we have seen that some companies have really kind of seen the opportunity early on during COVID and kind of did a whole lot of, you know, innovations to cater to the like digital optic. And now we know that IRL is going to come and fight back next year to a degree, right? And I think people are sort of quite, quite ready to so it's going to be it's it's going to be interesting to see how much of the time is actually going to go back and whether there is actually that competition between digital and 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 IRL even still as we sort of create this new normal but i think to kind of bridge what you guys have said i i'm kind of hearing two really important things here so one i would say there may be opportunities and why this is also important is because it may help unlock some of that precious Time And if not time, certainly perhaps at least some brain capacity for people to be able to essentially, yes, deal with one world rather than two worlds. And then the second, which is perhaps even more important, is uh, I think through this kind of digital and physical decluttering almost in a way, we are going to help building positive sentiment for the consumer, which as we know, and we spoke about so, so many times it's really the most important currency in the post-peak attention economy because that's how they're going to end up prioritizing you when push comes to shove, right? Chris, you Yeah, you, you said something in particular that um, sparked my brain, which was um, IRL is, uh, you know, it's coming back. It's going to have to sort of fight for its place in this attention economy. And with IRL, it's something where, especially with everything that Hannah was saying about, you know, the lockdowns of the past couple of years, there's a whole generation of, you know, young music consumers and consumers in general who are building their identities online. And for the past couple of years, the way they express themselves and the way they define who they are is essentially been taking place in these sort of virtual and online environments. And typically that used to be what IRL's role was, is where, you know, live music has had such a massive role over the past, you know, several decades. Um, you know, you go back into you know, sort of from the 50s and onwards that these sort of live music scenes are where people go and they express who they are and they shape their identities. And now if people are doing that online, how this is why the bridge is so important because it's about identity, it's about fandom, it's about who you are and how you express yourself. Just going to a concert isn't going to be enough. You know, you need to be able to bring something from that experience, be able to show to your virtual audience that I was here, I've like done this, this is who I am as opposed to sort of just going there and coming back and, you know, maybe then going to another gig and telling your friends about it. Absolutely. I mean, so I think this is a, this is a really good kind of context to frame the rest of the discussion with. So to bring it a bit more sort of to, to earth for our listeners, let's give them a couple of examples. I mean, do we know about a few companies that are already, you know, engaging in sort of bridging the two worlds can we talk a bit about who is doing it and how and, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll chime in here with, um, I guess, like, K-pop is quite an interesting example because they've got such a hardcore, um, radicalized fandom. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, like, BTS have, you know, had the most successful uh, virtual concert during the pandemic. You know, and they've kept going with it and really sort of pulling in a huge amount of fans virtually for what is typically an IRL experience. Uh, but beyond BTS, there's this um, K-pop group called Aespa that have real life members and then virtual sort of renditions of themselves as well. 
and their music videos are like a hybrid of both the real life artists and the virtual one as well. So it creates this really nice dynamic for fans to be able to, you know, if you're, if you're going to go to see them in a live show, it's not going to be weird because you're familiar with them as people in real life. But then when you're interacting online and with content online and you see their sort of virtual characters and, you know, as that, as the metaverse sort of plays out and people start engaging more virtually, that's not going to be weird either. Because I think that's where the bridge can fall down sometimes is when you try and force someone across that channel when they might not necessarily fit on the other side of the river, right? It's, you've got to have a way for people to exist on both sides and to be able to thrive on both sides. Absolutely. And I think we'll, we'll dive into those, those barriers uh, a bit later in the podcast. But Tatiana, you, you might have some more examples to add. Yeah, um, I know that we have more recent um, examples that I think others will bring up, but I feel like such a good model for this is Pokemon Go, kind of a throwback, but like just to have people in the physical world picking up these virtual items um, that are dependent on where you are um, and then collecting them in this app. It's such a good model because the the digital and the in-person versions like can't exist without the other. Like you need both. They both, they both feed into each other and you, yeah, you, you can't have one without the other. Um, and I think about how that could be applied to something like a tour where, you know, maybe fans that are at um, Webster Hall in New York at a specific time when this one show is happening, get to pick up a virtual badge that says they were there. Um, and that's something that you could collect. Um, so I think, it's a throwback for the Pokemon Go, Go example, I think, think can be applied to like so many different um, sectors. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the Pokemon Go is a, is a really good, a really strong example of, of all this. Also, because they kind of do a lot of the uh, bridging through, through the app, as you mentioned, but then they also have the actual physical festival, right? That I think now happens in multiple cities uh, around the world every year where essentially Pokemon enthusiasts gather, spend some time together and have sort of cultural and entertainment experiences. So Pokemon, I guess, is one of those that's kind of approaching that bridge from both sides. And I saw your hand up, but only briefly. <laughs> was, that, yeah. was that real? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt because it was quite, quite an early bit, but um, Pokemon Go was such an interesting one because it was this overlay. It was something that had either been on your video game or you were playing cards with friends and so much of when we think of the future and like Web3 and uh, the metaverse. So we think of VR for some reason, but the reality is, you know, Pokemon Go was right there. You had your phone with you in front of you and you were engaging virtually through digital with the real world uh, in real time, which I think is something that we'll see probably more and more. I mean, they've been trying with the Google Glass for years, but I can only imagine that becoming more... Um, becoming stronger but you see it in concerts as well I've been I mean the gorillas concert has done it for years but um there was a glass animals concert last year where like you're watching the virtual show but if you had the app on your phone you could put your phone around the room and then there were the the faces in 3d like in the room with you so there's all sorts of these like opportunities I think music is kind of a a funny one because it exists somewhere in between the analog and the digital space and then gaming is always, we think of it as very like forward thinking in terms of entertainment, where it's basically got these like all-inclusive worlds where you can go shopping and talk to friends and all this stuff uh, and the monetization as well. Um, but it's having a harder time moving into the real world, which is something that Pokemon Go has done very interestingly, 
Sort of a rogue one is um, sports, though, because when you think about it, it's one where people have pretty much since the inception of broadcast been able to engage with it both on the playing field, in the pub with their friends. People are, they're now doing things. I know Srishti's talked before about like live betting where you can watch on the stream and then you can bet at the same time. Uh, There's fantasy football leagues. Like it's so many overlaps through the same fandom between IRL and digital. So that's also a very interesting space. I think I think it's a, that you bring up a really important point there, particularly around the differences by entertainment sector. And then even within those sectors, there will be companies that are somewhat way ahead on that sort of digital journey or as let's let's say closer to the digital side of the spectrum and vice versa. Like in in games particular in particular, I'm kind of thinking, yes, games are very much forward on the digital front, but actually, if you if we think about it, for most games companies, unless we think of exactly things like Pokemon or, you know, Magic the Gathering by the Wizards or something like that, really, IRL is, digi- is video games' weakest engagement spot right now, isn't it? So I, I'm kind of thinking that for as much as it is important for, you know, music to, like, crack digital experiences at physical concerts. I almost think that it's just as important for, for games companies going forward to make sure that they can build up meaningful presence at those real life events, you know, and we are seeing uh, things like, uh, uh, you know, sort of holograms and animations uh, of spaceships dropping, you know, content, etc. at football stadiums. I think it's definitely worthwhile for us to dive deeper into that throughout this discussion, but not before Chris tells us what he's got yeah, to say. Yeah, thinking like <laughs> even across all of the sort of differences with the our different like entertainment verticals, there does seem to be a similar kind of thread that there's like this underlying theme of community across all of them. Like there's the Pokemon Go community. And I think a lot of people picked it up when it started playing. The people who stuck around are the people who got a lot out of the community aspects of it. Um, and similar thing with like music and sports in particular, which is so community based when you're like talking about what's around your like fan club and you know it'd be interesting to really kind of like dive into that aspect because so many people now are building their communities online first and they're not their sort of core friend group their core social group aren't people that are in their neighborhood or down the road it's people like all across the world all over the place basically and so when you start bridging that into IRL and you give these people a chance to meet in real life, you know, that's a really powerful experience when you're so familiar with people like digitally, which, you know, saying that it's the same with like when you meet your employees that you've been talking to over Zoom for a while um, in real life. It's a similar kind of dynamic, right? Absolutely. Um, to kind of just move this uh, move this on a little bit. I mean, we, we talked about it and we clearly established that there are essentially almost like two different angles at which you can go, right? You can be, you're essentially either like an IRL first proposition trying to bridge towards digital, or you are a digital proposition trying to bridge towards IRL. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. Like what, what do you guys think are the sort of key factors to digital first companies that they need to think about going to IRL? And what's the opposite for IRL companies? What do they need to think about to go into digital? Are they largely the same things they need to think about? Are they different? Is one easier than the other? Thoughts? <laughs> it's a great question. In, I, go on, it's a really good question. I mean, my first thought on it would be that in both cases, they need to think about some sort of 
uh, allowing continuity between between the two. You know, you're not you shouldn't be parallel creating two parallel worlds and expecting consumers to engage on both sides. Um, you should be expecting them to have behavior on one side and be making a continuous path for them to have new behaviors and an extension of that that they can then engage with on the other side. Does each, I mean, do we think that one side is essentially better positioned to get there than the other? Or do they just have kind of like a specific set of nuances that they all need to get through, but really the workload and the difficulty is about the same? It's probably different for each, right? Well, for music, for example, a virtual concert is never going to replace a live concert, right? So it's going to be a lot harder to do virtual, to, to have a virtual side to it. Versus gaming has the opposite problem, right? It exists entirely entirely into a virtual world, but unless you're LARPing, like there's not really much you can do IRL <laughs> unless you go like very hardcore. So they've almost got um, the same problem on the other side. Well, can they can can actually the games maybe bring some of this, you know, not necessarily into like an actual IRL games experience, but perhaps yeah, just do activations and partnerships with sectors that are strong in that IRL sector, right? To your point, Hannah, about uh, you know the the strength of the appeal of a of a live music concert or a or a live sports event can get you know what are the kind of things that I guess games can do to to plug themselves into that space and into that experience. Tatiana, sorry, you had, I saw your hand up. <laughs> well, this doesn't directly answer that question, but it's some, somewhat indirectly. Um, I've been thinking about how with like virtual concerts, with live streams, um, there's so much talk about how they need to be offering something that you can't do in real life. Otherwise, it's just replicating the experience and, and what's the point? Um, and I feel like that maybe relates here where it's like, IRL companies need to think about things that their consumers or fans might want to do that they can never do in real life and vice versa. Um, so like the, the examples that do that are much more compelling than say, I, I remember, um, we were talking, uh, about how there was a game where you could like order from a virtual taco, Taco Bell or something. And then it would actually show up at your door, which is really cool and really fun. And like, probably worth it as a marketing thing to some extent, but it's less compelling because you could just go to Taco Bell in real life too. Like there isn't that much of a difference between the IRL and physical experience. So maybe it has something to do with that, like um, creating something completely new that your fans couldn't do with, with the version that you've got. I think it was Chipotle. <laughs> oh, it was Chipotle. Sorry. Easy, sorry, easy sorry, mistake. Sorry, <laughs> uh, no, but I, I do think that you, you bring up a really important point, particularly about, you know, as we discussed at the very beginning, the whole point is trying to move away from having two parallel worlds that are mm -hmm. really the same and only differ by technology and interface, right? And I completely agree with you there, Tatiana, that uh, I guess one of the key challenges should be thinking about not what can we take into digital or what can we take from digital to IRL, but it really what is there that can be new and helpful that hasn't really been done yet and can be done using the symbiosis of the two worlds? Chris? Yeah, to that point, I'm just wondering whether it's the right way to think about it going from, okay, we're a digital first proposition and we are going to try and do some stuff in real life and the same like, oh, we're an RL proposition. How do we like be more active in digital? Whether it's better to just actually take a blank canvas approach to it and be like, okay, how can we be a modern 21st century, 2021 or coming up to 2022 entertainment company, entertainment proposition where we can pull in the best of both worlds and like 
meet the needs of our fans wherever they arise. So if our fans need something in real life, we can be there, we can serve them. If our fans need something digitally, we can be there, like we can serve them. That, that you know, if that's the way to think about it rather than how do we go across. Um, I'm so I don't know whether bridge is the right word as much as you're creating a whole new um, like landscape <laughs> to um, start competing in. But go on, Hannah. Yeah, I was just going to agree with you. I think that thinking of it as as two distinct worlds has some usefulness when you're first starting to think of like, oh, where are they now? But when you look at Gen Z or even like the older Zillennials or um, and Gen Alpha as well, like they're not thinking of the world in terms of digital versus IRL, right? They're able to sit next to their friends and text the same friend on three different platforms and then laugh with each other about it and then go home and like play a game together. You know, it's all, to them, it's all interacting. It's all hyper-social. Digital blends very well with their real lives. They've all, they're always going to have a phone in their, hand. They've, in their hand. They've always had a phone in their hand. And the ability to use that in any way they want. I mean, what is the overlap of digital and IRL if not being able to order from an app on your phone or being able to watch Taylor Swift live streaming on Instagram and then sending her a message. We've already got this hyper blended system. And so it's almost unuseful to think of it as such a dichotomy. It shouldn't be like, we're a digital first company. We need to go IRL. It's we're this company mostly in digital, but how are our players or listeners or viewers or whatever engaging with us outside of what we're doing right now? And how can we enable that? And monetize that in a sense but uh not even necessarily just tap into it yeah i think that's a that's an important important takeaway for sure i guess the the thought should always be you know if a company is digital first or irl first it shouldn't really be how do we create something in the other world but how do we make our existing thing better by implementing aspects of the other world and its possibilities so let's uh Move this on a bit. I mean, a very interesting discussion, certainly about the different directions of travel and where to go from where and how. But what are the key sort of barriers to making this happen these days? What are the real difficulties that companies may experience on the journey of bridging IRL and digital? I think the first one that comes to my mind is accessibility from a consumer and a creator standpoint. And I think uh, Web3 um, really kind of exemplifies this with the whole sort of world of NFTs and um, and DAOs and, you know, the the general sort of, not just like the cost, but the kind of knowledge that's needed to really execute something amazing in certain digital spaces. And the same with certain like in real life spaces as well. And because um, I think of one of the best examples we've seen of NFTs being used is the Avenged Sevenfold um, Death Bats Club, where they're creating these NFTs for all of their, for like select members of their fan bases and ownership of that NFT allows you to sort of have lifetime tickets or like they can sort of drop like guitar lessons. And they're like, they're even talking about doing things like having like a round of golf, you know, be able to deliver that via like NFT. And the reality is that while the tech is like really cool and there's a lot of, there's a really active web three community, there's a lot of the world that's still, doesn't even know what a, what the metaverse is or like has no idea what like crypto or like NFTs are. And so um, I think that could be one potential barrier. But then when you think of it from a creator standpoint, there's so many amazing like 
artists out there which are already doing so much in terms of like their marketing, their writing, their touring, their production. And to add, you know, the sort of more advanced um, like digital uh, propositions like Web3 on top of that, it's not going to be for everyone. And so it's it's more just the challenge of adding another hat and how do you balance it? How do you really be a IRL and digital artist rather than leaning more towards one way or the other? And can experiences, I mean, when you say it's not going to be for everyone, like, are we are we heading to a world where we're just going to kind of make a bit of a cutoff or, or, or and then, you know, just kind of hope that certain generation will just kind of grow up with, with, with all of these things? Or are there actually opportunities where you can maybe appeal to, let's say, the older consumer segment, you know, in IRL via digital or vice versa? Anna? I think, I mean, it's a, a very good question to ask. When we do our, our surveys, right, we're seeing the same sort of early adopter young male skewing group that's interested in gaming, NFTs, like all these early digital first adopters, um, including also virtual concerts. So the same group of people is basically playing games, watching the virtual concerts, engaging with all of these really cool like crossover spaces. And that's still a very small demographic, right? Like, how do you appeal to just more people? And obviously, the more that this happens, like the more propositions start trying, uh, the more mainstream it gets and the more people, it's sort of a, a flywheel effect where suddenly it becomes more and more mainstream. But until that, you don't want to run the risk of just appealing to these tech savvy, like very early adopter kind of group that's still, that's always going to be pretty niche. It's always going to be a very minority group amongst the broader population yeah so i guess bringing it somewhat closer to the to the mainstream is going to be somewhat of an intersect between i guess technological advances to uh, to chris's point but then also actually acting on the behavioral trends right that we know are already there and they may differ from age group to age group but the opportunities should nonetheless be facilitated by the technology yeah i mean it's, it's going to require sorry, like a a rethinking of what tech forward is. Um, it can't all look the same. It can't all be something cool and flashy and like what you'd see in Fortnite because that's appealing to a very small set of the population that also happens to design most of the tech, whole separate thing. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 doable and there's a lot of possibility there, but it does require a lot of, of rethinking and some innovation and dare I say it, more diversity and strategy. Oh, you go there. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> I mean, not to, not to you know, discuss a sort of buzzword for the sake of a buzzword, but how does the metaverse fit in? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, uh, to, be, to be honest, uh, the, the, the angle is, I feel that metaverse can be kind of read in two ways, right? Like, we can either say that it's essentially the ultimate move towards digital, or it's the ultimate move to actually bridge digital and IRL, or it's the ultimate copy of the IRL. So, <laughs> where, do, yeah, where, where, where do you see metaverse fitting into this discussion between bridging IRL and digital? Is it useful in any way? Does it fit? Do we need it, Chris? I think it comes back to the what we kind of started with, right? Which was, you know, where are your fans? Where are your um, the people you need to reach? not just as an entertainment proposition, but just any, any kind of like business or proposition, right? If, where are your, where are the people you need to get to, you know, it's like in, um, 
in South Korea, there's the, I believe it was like the Seoul civil service were like engaging people through the metaverse to um, basically do their taxes um, because, you know, people are, the people who are in it are so in it. Like they're so engaged with this sort of bubble that they're in and they're really engaged consumer group in these areas, in these platforms. And there's only a select sort of few that are really engaging them properly through those platforms because it's, an, it's the same with any kind of new channel. There's, you're not going to have the whole world on there in an instant. It takes time for people to gravitate towards it, people to experiment, people to work out what goes well and you know how to create successful experiences within them. And so with the metaverse, you know, it's how, mu- how much of those people are going to be there almost like exclusively, you know, like metaverse addicts, you know, Fortnite, Roblox addicts, how much of them are going to be, you know, actually just using it as another channel in the same way that they might use kind of like Instagram, where you might see like, oh, this like artist or this brand's doing a pop-up store and I saw on Insta. So now I'm going to go into the real world and jump on the tube and like actually, you know, go see it. Is it going to be that kind of dynamic or is it something that is too closed off right now and is going to stay that way? Yeah, I think it's telling that um, the spaces that are the closest thing to a metaverse right now are all in gaming, which is the sector that we just identified as the one that is going to have the most difficulty um, bridging the IRL and, and digital. So I think this is something that anybody that's working in the metaverse space needs to be thinking about because right now, so many, um, so many like so much of the the work done to create a metaverse is focusing on just replicating real life experiences. And I don't think that there's enough, I don't think that people are thinking enough about the bridge element. So I think the metaverse could come into play and be um, a really important part of everything we're talking about. But as it's being envisioned now, I feel like it's falling short of um, a need for for these bridges. It's interesting. I wonder whether metaverse and generally the the whole you know cycle and the the journey is gonna go through this sort of uh, trough of disillusionment before it really goes back to some sort of equilibrium. Sometimes reminds me, you know, as everyone to your point is building metaverses, kind of reminds me of where VR was kind of like 2013, 2012, 2013, where people have really been so excited and said it's finally here. Here are here is all the hardware. Here is everything you can do with it. And then people were like, "Oh, hang on, where's the content?" <laughs> <laughs> and it essentially send it onto this kind of prolonged process, right? And it feels like we are now finally getting to the point where there might be sort of virtual experiences, etc. But yeah, we just kind of want to when you're working on a, I guess, a metaverse, you don't want to end up in a situation where everyone's got metaverses ready for people to land into without actually something new, unique, and different, right? To your point. Hannah, I saw your hand up. Yeah. Is it still relevant? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm basically the same. Like the metaverse sounds and feels so much like just a, a replication of what's in the real world. They want to, it want to replace it. It wants to replace shops and, you know, going and trying out a car or trying on clothes or like it's also very broad. I mean, all this, the, the talks that they've given about launching it have been, um, you know, very, a little bit esoteric, but so it's it's hard to tell exactly what it's going to look like. But it does feel very much like they're trying to replicate these experiences and capture people in a digital world. And as everything we've discussed is, that's not how it works. You know, it's people want people are living in the real world and the digital world, and the disassociation between the two is what's bringing about like 
all of the a lot of the problems that we found with people who are online too much in terms of like mental health and all that kind of stuff. So expecting there to be a parallel world is sort of very Facebook, but also probably not going to work out too well. Fascinating stuff. Thank you to all of our great podcast guests uh, today. Tatiana, Chris, Hannah, you've been great. For everyone else who's listening, please stay tuned for episode five of uh, our podcast series. This one will be about leaning out. Thanks, everyone, and hope you have a great day wherever you are. Thanks for listening. Be sure to keep up with all the latest episodes by subscribing to Media Research on your favorite podcast platform.